Let us pray. Almighty God, by your blessed Holy Spirit, you have inspired the words of sacred scripture. So it is your infallible word written. By that same spirit, set me on fire this morning that I may faithfully and clearly preach the scriptures, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And also by that same spirit, grip the hearts of this congregation Enlighten the eyes of their minds that they may see your truth as it is in Jesus. Unstop their ears that they may hear you yourself speaking to them. Renew their wills that they may turn away from their sins. Embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel and live holy lives of gratitude according to your gracious law. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles or one of the few Bibles to the first letter to the Corinthians, the 11th chapter, beginning at the 23rd verse. Hear the word of God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his holy word, and to his name be ascribed all glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and ever. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of the new year. At all times, but I think especially on a day such as this, it seems appropriate to me for us to pray, as did the psalmist, Lord, teach us to number our days aright, that we may be given a heart of godly wisdom. So today we will hear the blessed gospel of our Lord Jesus preached from the pulpit and then demonstrated visibly at the table. We come to the Lord's table and are reminded of these very familiar words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. As often as we eat this bread... And drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We see at a glance that the Lord's Supper invites us to look back at that one perfect sacrifice on the cross. The perfect sinless one became for us a substitute on the cross. He offered his life in our place 
for our sins. Jesus' Father treated him who had never sinned as if he were a sinner for our sakes. For our sakes. That we might be forgiven. Although the wages of sin is death. Because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. We are declared righteous. With Jesus' perfect righteousness. And therefore have the gift of eternal life. As John Stott puts it so clearly. The problem of forgiveness is constituted by the inevitable collision between divine perfection and human rebellion. Between God as he is and we as we are. The obstacle to forgiveness is neither our sin alone nor our guilt alone, but also the divine reaction in love and wrath toward guilty sinners. For although indeed God is love, we have to remember that God is holy love, love which yearns over sinners, while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. How then could God express his holy love, his love in forgiving sinners, while at the same time refusing to condone their sins? At the cross, in holy love, God, through Jesus Christ, paid the full penalty of our disobedience, took that on himself. He bore the judgment we deserve. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God is satisfied. God is satisfied. The wonder of it all. The wonder of it all. And so that the church will never forget the centrality of the cross. The Lord's Supper constantly points us back to that never to be repeated event that happened outside Jerusalem on a hill called Calvary about 2,000 years ago. A sermon must include the preaching of the cross. Or it's not preaching the gospel. Now, your pastors always do that here. But as I visit around various churches, I find that's pretty rare. And I hope you appreciate the, the, the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ regularly preached every Sunday. Because no matter how sincere the minister, no matter how pleading, no matter even if he has tears streaming down his cheeks, if he isn't preaching the cross, he's not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according with the scriptures. And without that being preached, the gospel is not preached. The Lord's Supper also celebrates Jesus' living presence with us here and now. The crucified, risen Lord Jesus, by the power of his word and spirit, is present with us here today. To speak to us, to convict us, to convert us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to supply us, to transform us. The Lord Jesus really, but spiritually, offers himself to us today. 
Come to me, he says. Come to me. All of you who are beat down and bruised and tired, come to me. I will forgive you. I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. The Lord Jesus offers himself, and we will be admonished at the time of the supper to feed on him in our hearts by faith. The Lord's table also looks to the future, for we are told in this passage, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So this is a meal of expectant waiting. And especially because this is the first Lord's Day of the year 2016, it's where we shall place our major emphasis today on the words, until he comes again. These words show that Time is moving toward a consummation. On this earth, time is not meaningless, repeated cycles as the Greeks taught. No, as God revealed to the Hebrews, time on this earth is aligned with a beginning at creation and an end at the great consummation of the conclusion of history when the earth shall be melted down and remolded into the new heavens and the new earth. Scripture is very clear that the crowning event of this culmination is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are described in the New Testament as people who are waiting for their blessed hope. Their blessed hope. This is what we're waiting for when Christ shall come again. We live in the world where there is sorrow, disappointment, and grief, where often our dreams lie shattered at our feet. But the Christian looks forward to that blessed hope when Jesus shall come to rule and reign in righteousness and peace. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, for it will be glorious. Scripture says, I has not seen nor has ear heard the wonderful things that God has prepared for those who love him. The things of this world, the good things of this world, only point to a far greater good and reality of the glory that will be ours when Jesus comes again. We need to realize that anything we think we would miss from here is simply an arrow pointing to a greater ecstasy, a greater glory, that God is prepared for those who love him. Ian McLaren has his character, Margaret Howe, say, our dreams can't be better than God will do. Scripture pictures the second coming of Jesus Christ to his people as a fulfilling expectation of a beloved, long-absent spouse or close friend. Looking forward to it, eagerly, could hardly wait for the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Peter expresses it this way, though you have not seen him, that is, Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible love and joy. This is true of people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They know they are loved by him, forgiven by him, And we'll be received by him. And they love him back. 
We love Him because He first loved us. And we desire to see Him. There's a yearning. Paul talks about this in the 8th chapter of Romans. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait the adoption of sons. That is the redemption of our bodies. For Christians, there's a holy dissatisfaction with things as they are in this world. We hate the personal sorrow, disappointment, and grief. People we love are suffering and dying. We are frustrated when our dreams don't work out. At home and around the world, we see terror, war, injustice, cruelty, extreme poverty, and futility. We long for that time when there will be no more death, sorrow, and suffering. When God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. We want Jesus to come and set everything right. We pray as thousands, millions have before us. Lord, how long? How long must we endure the sorrow and agony of this veil of tears? Now, if we really believe this, why don't we long more for Jesus coming? I think because we really don't believe deep in our hearts that the best this world has to offer is not better than heaven. If we believe the promises of Scripture, we know that the best the world has to offer are gifts of God, which are arrows pointing to the ecstasies of heaven. We tend to settle on the arrows as the real stuff. I remember about the time I got engaged to be married to Barbara. I heard a sermon on the second coming and how we all ought to be longing for it. But frankly, I longed to get married more. I didn't want Jesus' second coming to interfere with that. I remember that in... Heaven, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. I didn't want to miss out. Now, of course, I imagined then that we would have perfect bliss in our marriage. Now, I did have a good marriage. But frankly, even in the years before Barbara got sick, it wasn't unmitigated bliss. But don't laugh at me, neither is yours. You know, we, we, the anticipation is always more fulfilling than the reality. And that's true of anything we really want. We think, I've just got to have it. That starts when we're little kids. I remember one time, one of my children had gotten a, a bike for, a new bike for Christmas. And after he'd had it a couple of days, he said, Daddy, why is it that, that when we really want something really bad, after we get it, we're glad to have it, but it's not so great as we thought it was going to be. It's always that way. About everything. You know that's true. Think back in your own life. That's true. So we look forward to that time when we come into the presence of Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. Because that's where we really find the reality that our earthly experiences only point to. And then, of course, the last 23 years of our marriage 
I cared for my totally disabled Barbara, bathing her, changing her diapers, feeding her. And what kept me going was the promise of resurrection, the promise of Jesus, that as he rose, we too will rise. Because Jesus rose from the dead and promises to all who have faith in him that they too will rise from the dead, I could go on. Someday there would be restoration of all that the locusts had eaten. Barbara's destroyed brain and frail body will be reversed. Death will be swallowed up by life. We know that's true because Jesus promised it. That's true of all your shattered dreams too. If you know Jesus, the promise is reversal of all of that. Fulfillment. The joy that you're longing for won't come fully in this world, but it will come in the new heavens and the new earth. Although our outer self is wasting away, says the apostle, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is what he calls the awful experiences of this world. And he had his more than his share of them. He calls them a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has waiting for us who love him. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Now, perhaps some of you have gone to a grand dinner where some artist has done a beautiful ice carving. It was well done and beautiful. But during the meal, the carving was melting away before our eyes. By the time it was over, there was cold water under it. And that's about all. This transitory world is like that, only with slowed down time, so we don't see it. And it's hard for us to believe it. It seems like this is real. That's just sort of out there in the future. But all that God has promised us is really real. Believe his promises. Trust his word. His promises will never fail. Now, I would not be faithful to the Lord or to you this morning if I simply overlooked the fact that when Jesus comes again, there will be a great separation. If to temporarily make you feel good about yourself, I did not warn you that some of you might right now be plunging toward everlasting destruction in hell, I would be no friend to you. What kind of minister of Christ would I be if I simply said soothing and comforting and tranquilizing things as I verbally patted you on the head and thereby greased your skids to hell? Would you really like me better if I just did that? It would make you feel better right now. Just assure you that you're all going to heaven, no questions asked. C.S. Lewis used a wonderful illustration. He said, what if I knew of a train that was careening toward a bridge that had washed out. Nobody on the train knew it, but I knew it. The engineer didn't know it. 
people were snoozing and talking and laughing and just doing what people do. Uh, and, but if I could get word to that engineer, say, slam on the brakes, throw the train into reverse, I could save lives. Now, people would be in a temporary panic. I would have disturbed their complacency. But would anybody say I shouldn't have done that? No. So why would anybody think that I shouldn't warn people to flee from the wrath to come? Because it's coming on all those who do not belong to Jesus. Roland Hill was an 18th century English evangelical preacher. And he was sometimes criticized for his fervent preaching. Hearing of complaints, he said, Because I am in earnest, people call me a fanatic. But I am not. Mine are the words of truth and soberness. When I first came into this part of the country, I was walking on yonder hill. I saw a gravel pit fall in and bury three human beings alive. I lifted up my voice for help so loudly that they heard me a mile away in the town below. They came running. And two of those people were saved, who otherwise would most certainly have died. Did anybody call you a fanatic for calling out for help? Of course not. Because God loves people, he warns them, often through his preachers, but sometimes by circumstances, and perhaps most often by a combination of these, to get great catastrophes People bring upon themselves by refusing the grace of Jesus is putting them in dire danger. I pray that today we will heed the words of the letter to the Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The Lord's Supper is a preview of that wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb when all we who belong to Jesus by his grace that great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages sit down together in glory. When Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more, neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Whether you're a Christian or not, isn't this what you long for? To have all the negative stuff removed and all the good stuff be real and solid for eternity? If we reject Jesus, we have only to look forward to the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the seventh death, the second death. That is why at every celebration of the Lord's Supper, if it's properly celebrated, we are admonished to examine ourselves. Our Reformed ancestors believed that it was a great opportunity for pastors to speak to people's consciousness, to see whether we're trusting ourselves or other earthly people or things or trusting in Jesus Christ alone. If we belong to Jesus, are seeking to serve him, we are cordially invited to partake of his body and blood. But if we do not trust in Jesus, or we claim to, but we're living a hypocritical life, not living a life that shows Jesus at all, then we are to keep ourselves from the Lord's table.
until we come in repentance and faith to Jesus. Repentance means to change our minds, turn away from our sins. Faith means resting wholeheartedly on Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. To those who have received Jesus, he will say, come. Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to those who have rejected him or are hypocrites, he will say, depart from me, you cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If you have already come to Jesus in repentance and faith and are seeking to live according to his will, come to the supper and welcome. If you have not come to Jesus, come today. Don't delay. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now to Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, by the power of your word and spirit, speak to our hearts according to our need. Do not let your implanted word be snatched away by the enemy. We pray in Jesus' strong name and for his dear sake. Amen.